When evening comes, I return home and enter my study. On the threshold, I take off my workday clothes, covered with mud and dirt, and put on the garments of court and palace. Fitted out appropriately, I step inside the venerable courts of the ancients, where, solicitously received by them, I nourish myself on that food that alone is mine and for which I was born, where I am unashamed to converse with them and to question them about the motives for their actions, and they, out of their human kindness, answer me. And for four hours at a time, I feel no boredom, I forget all my troubles, I do not dread poverty, and I am not terrified by death. I absorb myself into them completely. And because Dante says that no one understands anything unless he retains what he has understood, I have jotted down what I have profited from in their conversation and composed a short study, The Prince, in which I delve as deeply as I can into the ideas concerning this topic, discussing the definition of a princedom, the categories of princedoms, how they are acquired, how they are retained, and how they are lost. So wrote Niccolo Machiavelli to a friend. Machiavelli's books revolutionized how modern man thinks about politics and also about strategy and war. Let's discuss. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Uh, thanks for joining School of War. I am delighted to welcome back to the show Professor Matthew Kronig. He's professor in the Department of Government and the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books, recently The Return of Great Power Rivalry, Democracy versus Autocracy from the Ancient World to the U.S. and China. And he is the contributor of the chapter on Machiavelli to the new edition of New Makers of Modern Strategy. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a great, great show and delighted to be back and delighted to chat with you about Machiavelli. So I have to one one more biographical item for you before we move on to Machiavelli, which is, the, of course, the most important thing about you, which is you are now joining a very august group of return guests to the show. So it's it's basically, at this point, it's you, Andrew Lambert, Hal Brands, the editor of New Makers of Modern Strategy, and Alex Mikabaridze, I think. Colin will inform me if I'm missing anyone. But that's 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 pretty good company. That's good company and very different topics. I think we did nuclear strategy last time. So We did. We did nuclear strategy in the context of Ukraine. And I have to say, I think that is one of our more listened to, certainly top 10 most listened to episodes since we've started the show. It got a lot of attention. And people, folks should feel free. We recorded it relatively early after the start of hostilities in Ukraine last year, uh, or I should say the, the, the renewed widespread hostilities in Ukraine last year. But you know, I don't know if much of the logic, the fundamental logic we were discussing has changed. So folks should certainly check that out. Yeah, I think it's all still relevant, unfortunately. Can I ask, so to, to author the Machiavelli chapter for New Makers of Modern Strategy is a bit of an honor in itself, right? Because the, the first edition is, you know, new, ma Makers of Modern Strategy from Machiavelli to Hitler, right, is, is, is the first edition. So the Machiavelli chapter has always been sort of foundational to this project. How did you, how did you come to be the one to, to make that contribution? Well, I was delighted when Hal invited me to do it. And, and I think it's because he 
learned that I've been teaching a course on Machiavelli at Georgetown for 10 years now. So one of the hardship posts uh, at Georgetown, we, we actually have a villa in Florence, Italy. And my colleagues <laughs> and I in political science had been wanting to teach over there. And they were saying, well, no, it's for Italian language and culture. You know, why are you going to teach U.S. foreign policy in Florence? And then we figured it out, Machiavelli. So we started teaching this course on Machiavelli and foreign policy in Florence 10 years ago. And, and at the beginning, I was speaking, to be honest. But teaching the course for 10 years, I actually, you know, have learned quite a lot about Machiavelli. And I think Hal knew about that and, and thought about me for this chapter. That story is appropriate on just so many levels and very, very appropriate for a strategist to have, to have figured that out as well. Got to start with the goal in, in mind and the goal was eating, eating more pasta and drinking more red wines. So. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in, in that original edition, and I guess the essay was reproduced in the second edition, the way to talk about Machiavelli as, as a strategist, right, was to focus in on the book that he wrote explicitly about war. And you, you address that book in your chapter as well, but you really do a more holistic survey of Machiavelli's career and thought, sort of in the spirit of, even if it's you know more directed to politics and, and political philosophy and political practice, it's still relevant to strategy. So, so speak to that if, if you would. Why, why did you widen the scope? What does it mean that you know the Prince and discourses on Livy also have things to tell us about strategy in addition to Machiavelli's sort of you know, handbook on strategy? Yeah, well, let me say a couple of things. You know, one, I think a lot of IR scholars reference Machiavelli, but maybe they've read The Prince or maybe they just have a couple of quotes, you know, better to be feared than loved, but they, they don't really know him. And then, you know, political philosophers write about Machiavelli, but, you know, they're not experts on, on geopolitics. So when I started to teach this course 10 years ago, there wasn't really a great source out there to, to help me get up to speed on what does Machiavelli mean for strategy and and geopolitics. So essentially what I tried to do with this chapter was, was write the chapter I wish I had 10 years ago. And so I think it does provide a kind of good one-stop shop for understanding Machiavelli, his time, uh, and his writing. Yeah. So when I went back and read the original Felix Gilbert piece, it's, it's, it's a good piece, but it does focus exclusively on the art of war. And I think strategy today is, is just broader than how do you organize and your military, and which is what the art of war really focuses on. You know, we have great power competition with Russia and China, sanctions, ideological aspects of the competition, e economic decoupling. And, and so I thought just focusing on, you know, how do you organize for war is, is too narrow for understanding strategy in the world we live in today, but also unnecessarily narrows down Machiavelli and his contributions, because I think his bigger contributions probably were in the other works, in the prints, in the discourses on Libby, and not on, on the art of war. And just one other point, if you read The New Makers of Modern Strategy, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners will or have done already, Hal, Hal makes a similar point in the introduction to the book, that in the past, people, in the past editions, people thought of strategy as kind of military strategy, but in the world that we live in, we do need to think about it more broadly. So why don't we start with some basics then for folks whose information about Machiavelli is that, you know, he, he, he wrote The Prince, maybe they read it in college, uh, ends justify the means, et cetera. Who, give us a bit more. Who, who was Niccolo Machiavelli? What was the world like into which he was born? And what are the, the broad strokes of his career? Yeah, well, he was born in 1469 in Florence, Italy, and died in 1527. 
So was living in at the height of the high Renaissance. Lorenzo the Magnificent was the leader, the Medici prince in, in charge of Florence when he was a young man. And he was primarily a policymaker. That's how he thought of himself. So when the Medici were overthrown, there was a new Florentine Republic that came in after this brief rule from Savonarola, this Dominican friar. And Machiavelli was appointed to essentially be national security advisor for the Florentine Republic and had more than a decade in office and went on diplomatic missions to meet with popes and kings, organized the new Florentine militia, led the Florentine militia in a military campaign to retake Pisa, their, their big rival. And then this was a time of the Italian wars, so a lot of wars on the peninsula. And the Medici, with the backing of the Pope and Spain, were swept back into power. The Medici were put back into power, the Republic overthrown. And they didn't look kindly on the holdovers from the previous government, so Machiavelli was tortured and then exiled to his family farm just outside of Florence. And so that's, that's when he became Machiavelli. He was in exile in the country, not a lot to do. Was Machiavellian in his personal life? We know from his letters he was drinking and, and having affairs and playing cards. But then he'd go home at night and write and wrote some of the greatest masterpieces in, in the Western canon, The Prince, The Discourses on Libby, and, and The Art of War. So really a, a, remarkable, a remarkable life. So there, I mean, you, you stayed out right. And then the implication of the way in which the, the chapter is included in this in previous volumes is, is that there's something foundational about Machiavelli's contribution to, to strategic thought, but maybe even modern Western thought. What, what is, what is the case for that? Why, why is he, there are many important writers. Why is he so important? Why does he come first? Yes. Well, I, I titled my chapter Machiavelli and the Naissance of Modern Strategy, the, the birth of modern strategy. And, you know, he wasn't living through the Renaissance. And like many of his contemporaries in Florence, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and others, he was looking to the ancient world for inspiration and really modernized his field and, and brought it out of the, the Dark Ages and into the modern era. And so other scholars, Harvey Mansfield, for example, who's a leading scholar of Machiavelli, before me said that Machiavelli made modern political thought essentially by making a transition from focusing on how you can be good to how you can be effective. And so if you look at the Christian and classical political philosophers who preceded Machiavelli, you know, Cicero, St. Augustine, they focused on how can a leader be good? How can he be just? How can they be honest? How can they be generous? And Machiavelli switches and says, no, how can they be effective? How can they maintain their state? How can they grow their state in terms of power? And so that switch, Mansfield and others said, was really the switch to modern political science, thinking about the, the effectiveness of political action, not its goodness. And so my kind of contribution to this piece is to just say, well, strategy is really an offshoot of broader political thought. And, and I think that is a move you have to make to get to modern strategy. Strategy is after all, you know, about what are you trying to achieve? How can you best get there? And, and so I think that move from thinking about goodness to effectiveness was, was necessary. These, these are obviously very deep waters about which brilliant people or, or in which brilliant people disagree fiercely. Maybe, maybe it would be best to start sort of narrow and very rooted with the art of war, which I don't think is as widely read you, you point out it was it was the widest read 
book that he wrote in his day. I think in our day, you're much more likely to see the prints being read and then the discourses tends to get, you know, the, the prize as the, as, as, as the book that earns the most respect. But tell us a bit about The Art of War. What, what, if anything, does this book specifically have to tell us about strategy that is important or relevant? And was it as revolutionary as the, as the political thought per se? Well, it was the most widely read in his lifetime, as you point out. It was pointed in his lifetime, was, was widely read and influenced many other thinkers. Voltaire, for example, said that Machiavelli taught Europe the art of war. And so he sets it up as a dialogue between a, a famous mercenary and some young gentlemen in Florence about how to, how to wage war, how, how to raise an army, how to train the army, how to set up camps, kind of all the details you would need. And, and it's Renaissance in its method. So he looks to the ancient world. How did the Roman Republic, you know, organize for war? And then what are the lessons of that uh, Italy of his time? And essentially argued that, yeah, the Romans did it right, that having foot soldiers packed together in dense formations with armed with armor and swords and shields, now that's the way to fight. And he was skeptical of cavalry and firearms. And so that's what he argued. And some of the major contributions of that book, he, he was a big skeptic of mercenary armies. He thought that citizen soldiers would be better. And so Felix Gilbert and his contribution to the original makers of modern strategy really focuses on that, that Machiavelli, uh, you know, kind of foresaw the, the move to professional standing armies of the modern era and away from the mercenaries of, of the medieval period. And I think that's true. That is a contribution, but I think his contributions are much broader. He also paid a lot of attention to discipline and training uh, in an army, looking at the Roman example as well. And, uh, you know, some good quotes that nature makes few brave men, but with discipline and training can make many. And what, one of the controversies of the art of war is what did he think about firearms? Because he was living through really the revolution in military affairs, the, the, the gunpowder revolution. And during his lifetime, the French used modern artillery to great effect on battlefields in Italy. That the Spanish used firearms, arquebuses in, in southern Italy, effectively, really for arguably the first time. But, but Machiavelli was skeptical. He said, no, you know, firearms can scare your enemy. Maybe in the early stages, they're useful. But once you're underway, you know, they don't really work. You have to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So some have said, you know, he didn't really get it. In his defense, he was writing probably a, really a century before the reforms of Maurice of Orange of, of the Netherlands really brought the revolution to its full fruition. And um, he, he didn't recognize a niche role for firearms in, in the opening stages of, of battle. So I, I cut him a little bit of slack there. So you, you paint this picture of Machiavelli as, the, as, a, as an early and important voice, right, on, in favor of what are in effect citizen soldiers. You say that sort of a fair reading of his books leads one to the conclusion that he prefers republics to principalities, and which in other words, as you put it, is our democracy versus autocracy divide on which he is on the democracy side. So that's all on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, you use the word, you, you said Machiavelli is Machiavellian, and you use the word in its sort of traditional old sense of immoral. You know, he's out and about doing immoral things in his personal life. And you cite Mansfield as one of your, you know, teachers, if only through his books on this subject. And so I, there's a confusion here that I want you to help me work through. You know, if Machiavelli is for citizen soldiers and democracies, well, that all sounds pretty, pretty good to me. You know, aren't, we're for those things. We think we're good people. He's a founder of things that we think are good. 
So what's what's the problem? Why why does he have such a bad reputation? Is that all overblown? What's what's going on here? Well, good good questions. I, I think he I think his I think he's not as Machiavellian as people thought. thought. I think that you know, his reputation isn't fully deserved. He was a proponent of republics, and as we may talk about in a moment, in discourses on Libya, it's pretty clear that he sees republics as superior to principalities. But, you know, the, the prince did cause a widespread sensation sh- shortly after Machiavelli died. Shakespeare referred to him as the murderous Machiavelli. The Catholic Church banned his writings for two centuries. And so I think that that, you know, reputation of Machiavelli as a kind of a teacher of evil for its own sake has been passed down to us. And it's, it's partly justified, but not, not fully justified. And what I try to argue in the chapter is that he certainly was consequentialist in his morality. You know, things are not good or bad for their own sake, but they're good or bad depending on their consequences. And so there, there's this quote attributed to Machiavelli, the ends justify the means, which he never actually wrote, but, but it's not a bad summary of, of his worldview. Um, so in The Prince, he, he is arguing that princes need to be stingy, that princes sometimes need to use cruelty well, cruelty well used. But he's arguing that that's necessary to maintain a state, and, and that's first and, and foremost priority of a prince. And in the discourses on Livy, he argues in favor of Republican forms of government, but not because they protect democracy and, and human rights and human dignity, but rather because he thinks they're better able at accumulating wealth and power on the world stage. And he wants Italy to become a great power. And so thinks that adopting Republican institutions will, will do that. So certainly consequentialist in his morality, but you know, with political objectives from, in mind. Mm. That's really interesting. As you can tell, I'm attempting to pin you down here because this this debate has always fascinated me. And it's sort of a foundational debate in, you know, amongst the political scientists and political philosophers that that you and I both have a lot of respect for. You have the sort of Quentin, you you cite all these people in your chapter, and I just, I'm trying to figure out exactly where you are on the spectrum here. You have the sort of Quentin Skinner line of thought. And some of what you just said, I think, kind of overlaps with that, that, you know, when you look at Machiavelli, he really is a founder and is a reviver of classical forms and a translator of them into modern forms that we, we like and we appreciate. And it's, it's an overstatement of the case to, to call him, a, you know, Machiavellian in the Shakespearean sense. And on the other hand, you have Mansfield and you have, you know, Leo Strauss, whose, whose book on Machiavelli I once read in the sense that I, I my eyes ran over the words. <laughs> on the page. But as you know, to really read that book, you need to have Livy open in front of you, preferably in Latin, you know, the prince and the discourse is preferably in Italian and sort of work your way. I, I have not read it in the true and highest sense. It's pretty, um, it's pretty yeah. good. I, I, I think it is, it is worth it if you, if you can. But in any event, you know, you have that line of thought that, that is much, it's a much darker read of Machiavelli, but also of modernity, right? They, they, they agree that Machiavelli is a founder of modernity, but they they think that there's something very dark at the heart of the enterprise. That what you what you call somewhat anodynely consequentialist thinking is when you when you really pull the thread, like itself, quite a dark thing. So is it is your position essentially both these things are true, or where, where do you where do you come down in this great debate? Well, I guess I'm, I'm bypassing the, the debate <laughs> a little bit, and I think you know they're obviously both great scholars and making great points. But again, I think they were trying to figure out, you know, the, where it fits in, in terms of political philosophy. And I was trying to figure out where does he fit in, in terms of geopolitics and strategy. And I think at the end of the day, he's, we, we've maybe overthought Machiavelli. I think he was essentially a, a man of action. 
he was, was tired of Florence getting kicked around by its bigger neighbors, the Holy Roman Empire and, and the Spanish and the French. And so he wanted a powerful prince to unify Italy, found a Republican form of government that would grow in power, just like the Roman Republic had in, in the ancient world, and be able to stand up to and maybe even dominate its neighbors. And so I think keeping, keeping that in mind, a lot of these, what would appear to be contradictions, like was he in favor of principalities or republics, kind of disappear. I think he, he thought a powerful prince was going to be necessary to found this, this new state, but that he's pretty clear also that a good prince should then establish a Republican form of government that will better enable it to amass power, power and wealth. Whatever works in Whatever a sense. Works. Yeah. Yeah. Itself. I don't think Machiavelli ever writes that, but not, not entirely unfair. So let's, let's talk a bit about sort of elements of his thought that would be valuable to, to the modern strategists. So you, you spend some time talking about his idea of virtue and his idea of fortune as, as sort of organizing and, and related principles in his thought. What does he mean when he uses these words? Yeah, in a skill, the dichotomy between virtue and fortuna, virtue and fortune, or, you know, skill and opportunity are a dichotomy that others have picked up on. And essentially his argument is that, you know, to be a good leader, you have to have skill, but that it helps if opportunity falls in your lap, but if opportunity falls in your lap and you don't have skill, you, you won't be able to succeed. And so essentially you need both, you need the skill to kind of harness opportunity to your ends. But what, you know, this, this comes in the Prince and, you know, the Prince is a narrower focused book than people might understand. It's, it's not a guide to leadership broadly. He, he's really focused on a specific problem. How can a new Prince maintain their state? And this was a real world problem in, in his time because he did see, you know, the Medici overthrown. He saw his Florentine Republic overthrown. He saw the Milan lose its state, the King of Naples lose its state. And so this was the question, how can a, a new prince maintain their state? And he said, well, opportunity helps if your father is the Pope, like Cesare Borges was, and he gives you a state, you know, that's a good starting point, but that you also have to have skill. And, and so more I can say about that because, you know, some people say, well, what, what does he mean by virtue? It's so vague, but I, I do think he goes into it in some of the key chapters of the Prince. And this is again, in terms of the way in which he's revolutionary, this is a refounding of the idea of virtue from, from sort of classical goodness, right? Yeah, that's right. So if I could, I'll, I'll quote what I think may be the key passage in the Prince. And it comes in chapter 15, which is, you know, interesting. You know, I think today we teach people to, you know, foreshadow your argument in the first few pages. You know, he kind of gets to chapter 15, but in chapter 15, he says he plans to quote, seek the truth of the matter rather than imaginary conceptions. Many have imagined republics and principalities that have never been seen or heard from because how one lives and how one ought to live are so far apart that he who spurns what is actually done for what ought to be done will achieve ruin. Not just that it won't go well, he, you'll be ruined. Hence, it is necessary for a prince to learn how not to be good, to learn how not to be good. So that, you know, there was a pre-existing genre of mirrors of the prince book where you know, people would say, oh, to be a good prince, you need to be just, you need to be honest. And so Machiavelli had that in, in mind. And this is kind of a direct reaction to that. His mirror of the prince says, no, you want to be effective. If you want to maintain your state, you have to learn how, how not to be good. It occurs to me, there's probably no better 
person to talk to about this subject than you, Matt. This way in which Machiavelli is is a realist and a kind of founder of of, of realism. Can you can you say a bit of? I mean, what what you're laying out here sounds re- realistic in every sense of the term. That is to say, devoted to seeing the world as it is, not as it ought to be, as as that passage more or less lays out explicitly, but also like it ought to play into later theories and more formal theories of realism and international relations. What is Machiavelli's role in the formation of that body of thought? Yes. Well, well, realism is one of the major theories of international relations today and basically says that the world is anarchic. There's no world government, so countries need to protect themselves. To protect themselves, they need to be powerful. And that realistically, you know, where the name comes from, let's, let's be realist, that if you, you try to be too moral in international politics, you could leave yourself vulnerable. So you see, so you have to do what it takes to defend yourself. Sometimes that means going to war, it might mean deceiving others. And so modern realist scholars, you know, so some critics would say, well, realism is immoral. I think modern realist scholars would say, no, it, it's amoral. It's, it's just a different, you know, Politics is a different sphere, trying to judge international politics with our traditional standards of morality that maybe work within a domestic society that's stable and and safe. Trying to apply that to a dangerous international system just doesn't make sense. They're different worlds and and different standards apply. It seems sort of like a targeted Machiavellianism, right? In the sense that the, the, the modern theorists of realism want to apply something like Machiavelli to interstate matters, but leave open the possibility that actually there's or there are you know meaningful ordering principles in our say our personal conduct, right? Whereas I take Machiavelli to be somewhat more radical. Well, that's a good point, yeah, because I think that contemporary realists and, and contemporary realists do look back at Machiavelli as an early realist and an inspiration. But contemporary international relations scholars would say, well, there's a difference between domestic politics and international politics. Because domestic politics, you do have a state that has a monopoly on the use of force. And so therefore, it can provide stability and, and security. And so therefore, having moral principles, being honest, you know, et cetera, makes sense because you don't have to worry about your, for the most part, you know, your, your security. On the other hand, in international politics, there is no world government. And so you, you have to protect yourself. And, and when your survival's on the line, you need to maybe do things that wouldn't approve of in, you know, safer domestic context. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. It's a good point because Machiavelli is talking about how does a prince maintain order within the state and does recommend using cruelty well in order, in order to do that. Well, it's just always struck me as a, I don't think I would describe myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a realist in the sense that everyone's a realist and, and every modern at least is a realist and wants to think of the way th- things are rather than ought to be. But I'm I'm not a realist in the in the IR theory sense, and it's one of the reasons I'm not is it's always struck me as a bit of a problem um, with the theory that somehow this is a manner of thinking that applies to the international system, but somehow not to other forms of politics. And Machiavelli just strikes me as much more much more consistent, but also again, I'm sort of putting my own cards down on the table here and where I come down in the great debate, but much more radical and, and, and much darker, right? In the sense that you know, fortune, you know. As, as, as you know, and, and write about fortune as an ordering principle is, is replacing, you know, sort of classical conceptions of a, of a much more ordered universe. But if, if, in fact, the principal human experience is one of encounters with chance, right, and a kind of chaos, anarchy, you know, to, to, to bring the modern realists, IR, IR realists into it, well, that counsels a certain manner of, of behaving and action and reveals as ridiculous 
other older forms of behaving and acting, uh, like a vision of, of ethics and politics that's just much, again, it's much more radical and, and darker than I think, you know, I'm, not, I'm tempted to name names, but modern modern academic realists would consider themselves to be. I think they all think of themselves more or less as good people. Yeah, a, a couple points. One, you know, I have a lot of criticisms of modern realism, including you know some of the work of John Mearsheimer, who calls himself a, a realist, but in many ways I think is unrealistic in his analysis and, and recommendations. But you know, I, I don't think Machiavelli was. I think he was making a self conscious and radical break from the past and kind of goes through uh, attacking one by one in, in several chapters, the traditional princely virtues of justice and so on. But at the same time, he did say that, maybe I can find a quote, but he said, it, it's good to be perceived as loyal and just and merciful and, and upright. So he did see a value in being perceived as, as holding those traditional qualities. And then his quote says, but if need be, you may need to turn your back on those qualities in order to be effective. So he did say, if, if need be, which seems to suggest to me that if you don't have the need, then behaving according to the traditional morality might make sense. Yeah. It always struck me there's a direct through line from that observation to sort of practicing realists who, for whom, you know, I think one can have a lot of respect, not, 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 not the academic variety. So folks, the Cold War realists like Henry Kissinger, say, who is always very clear in his writing and in his actions, for that matter, that, you know, national conceptions of right and wrong, you know, he often talks about in terms of the histories, right, the histories of countries are conditioning factors that statesmen must take into account, right? But it's very clear the way he says it and the way he lays it out, that the whole thing's a bit of an annoyance, you know, and like the true role of the statesman is actually kind of navigate amongst these things. But you'd never counsel ignoring them. You would never, in the same way that Machiavelli would never counsel just ignoring that it's helpful to, to, to appear to be good. But it's it's not the heart of the matter, you know. Yes, yes, that's that's right. And uh, yeah, I think Kissinger did sometimes see domestic U.S. politics and, and morality getting in the way of what the United States really needed to be doing to secure its interests internationally. Yeah. In just sticking with this theme of realism for 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 a minute, is who who is Machiavelli most borrowing from amongst the ancients? You know, obviously we could talk about Livy. You know, certainly modern realists see Machiavelli, you sort of paired with Thucydides in some ways as a, as a founder of realism, but, but who are his most cl important classical sources? Well, well, the first one that comes to mind is actually in the discourses and Livy, because it's called the, the discourses on Livy, because he's looking back at Livy's monumental histories of, of Rome. And Livius was also an influence there because the, the question he's asking in the discourses is how did... And again, a pretty narrow question that's motivating the book. How did Rome rise from becoming a small city-state on the Tiber River to, to dominating the entire Mediterranean basin? And he concludes that it was the Republican institutions that were the key to their success. So it, he makes the, the argument very well, but Polybius, writing in the ancient world, has essentially made a similar argument. And so there, I think you see that ancient influence pretty directly. In terms of his realism, I'm not sure. That's a that's a good question. Well, I just I, maybe another way to ask the question is: Are there classical authors out there that you see as as not just sources of modern realist thought? Because there are obvious answers to that, but as sources for his particular radical take on realism. I guess what I'm getting at is it drives me nuts. <laughs> it's like a huge pet peeve of mine when people will sort of speak of Thucydides 
and Machiavelli in the same breath as yeah. founders of, of realism, as though there were no difference between them. I'm just curious to know if you share that annoyance or if you, if you think there's something different from Machiavelli and all those old ancient writers. Yeah, I think there is something, something different. And, you know, he was writing in a different time period for one 1500 years or so later. But then too, he was, you know, some of the, he, he was reacting to 1500 years of classical and then Christian writing that the really was uh, holding these moral values as, as the supreme good and telling a leader, you know, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be just. And, you know, would say essentially that even if you're, you're you know, there's going to be the ultimate judgment day and you'll be judged by God. So even if people can't see everything that you're doing, you, you're going to want to be just regardless. And so Machiavelli had a very different point of view. And we haven't talked about his views on, on religion yet, but he was pretty disdainful, I'd say, of Christianity and uh, the Catholic Church. And some of these traditional values is, is getting in the way of effective leaders. And then I, I think also the Catholic Church, he, he wrote about how it was essentially the papal states prevented the unification of, of a powerful Italian republic. And so I think for that reason also didn't like the papal states. And there may be reasons in his biography, you know, he did live through the bonfire of the vanities and with Savonarola in, in Florence. And so he certainly wasn't a, a man of the cloth. Well, could you actually, it might be helpful to just say a bit about that, you know, Bonfire of the Vanities it might seem to some to be a Tom Wolfe movie, or excuse me, Tom Wolfe novel and entertaining but mediocre Bruce Willis movie based on the novel. What was the Bonfire of the Vanities? Yeah, so when the Medicis were overthrown and in the transition to the Florentine Republic, you had this Dominican friar, Savonarola, who gained an, an enormous following in Florence and was preaching against papal corruption in Rome, preaching against the wealth of, of the Medici and, and the Florentines. I thought there was too much of a focus on this life. They needed to be focused on the afterlife. And so he held these big bonfires of the vanities in Florence, where he encouraged people to come out and burn their worldly possessions, their Renaissance paintings, their books, their, their jewelry, their, their clothes. So who knows how many you know, Renaissance master paintings we, we lost in those bonfire of the vanities. But, but he went too far and the people in Florence started to bristle under his kind of theocratic rule. And he went too far in going after the Pope. And so the Pope had him excommunicated. The Florentines turned against him and he was eventually burnt at the stake outside of the Palazzo Vecchio in, in downtown Florence. And, and then Machiavelli came to power immediately thereafter. Maybe it'd be good to close with a discussion of, of democracy versus authoritarianism and where Machiavelli comes into that debate. You, this is, of course, the subject of your, of your book, which we've, we've never really discussed, certainly not on this show. You're bullish. You're, 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 you're bullish on behalf of democracies and take a dim view of the prospect of authoritarian states, which is a refreshing thing to hear in, in 2023, citizens of a democracy as we are. What's, what's, what's the broad case for that? And, and what role does Machiavelli play within it? Yeah, well, so my 2020 book does look at democracies versus autocracies and great power rivalry. And I start with the Greeks and the Persians 2,500 years ago and bring it all the way up to the U.S. and China today. And I do conclude that democracies tend to do pretty well in these things and autocracies tend to flame out in the end. And you know, I think there are a lot of people, though, who today are skeptical about democracy. We're too polarized. We're too gridlocked. Maybe China has the better system. They can plan for the long term. They can implement big bull you know, strategies, investments in the Belt and Road Initiative and other things. 
And, and Machiavelli was clearly encountering similar arguments in his time and argued, no, looking at ancient Rome, I think the Republican forms of government are better able to amass wealth and power in the international system. And in fact, he was part of the, the motivation for my, for my book. And, and he goes through and kind of systematically dismantles some of these arguments we typically hear about why autocracies are better. So, you know, we often hear that autocracies can plan for the long term. She has a plan for 2049. Uh, we can't see past the next election. You know, we, we zigzag with each administration. And he says, I have the quote here. I therefore disagree with the common opinion that a populace in power is unstable, changeable, and ungrateful. On the contrary, quote, the prince unchecked by laws will be more unstable and imprudent than a populace. And I think that's right. You know, if you just look at Mao Zedong bouncing from one failed policy to the other, and, and the checks and balances in our system keeps us on a pretty stable course. I mean, there are some exceptions like the Iran deal, maybe, but if you look at our foreign policy, I think there are a lot of broad continuities across parties going back to 1945 and other examples as well, where he kind of goes directly after these arguments that print dictatorships are somehow, somehow better. Matt Kronig, professor at Georgetown University, author of The Return of Great Power Rivalry and contributor uh, of the Machiavelli chapter to the new makers of modern strategy. It is always a delight to have you on the show to talk about everything from nuclear weapons through to some of the, 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 the deepest and most complicated currents of political philosophy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for indulging us again. My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for having me and I look forward to coming back anytime. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. For maps, photos, and more School of War content, follow along on Instagram at School of War. Just tap the link in the show notes and subscribe.